Hello, listeners. As an enhancement to your listening experience, I am now going to present these archive episodes unedited in their entirety, which includes all of my afterthoughts. So, continue listening after the outro music if you want to hear what I thought of the episode. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please support it by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. Welcome, this is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 199 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, the second test flight of the Soviet N-1 moon rocket. On July 3, 1969, the same month as the Apollo 11 moon landing, Soviet engineers made another secret attempt to fly their giant moon rocket. You may recall from episode 176, the first catastrophic launch of the N-1 rocket back in February of 1969 dealt a heavy blow to the Soviet space program, which was already seriously behind the U.S. in the moon race. While engineers at OKB-1 Design Bureau were picking up the pieces of the first N-1 test flight, their Kremlin bosses watched the United States space program progress through the Apollo 8 moon orbital mission in December of 1968, then Apollo 9 successful test of the lunar module in Earth orbit, and then the very successful Apollo 10, with the lunar module hovering just a few miles from the lunar surface, setting the stage for the actual landing in July of 1969. Not surprisingly, new calls for changing the course came to the Kremlin. However, neither technical failure nor political pressure at home and abroad could deter Soviet engineers from pressing on with the N-1 project. By that point, they had no illusions about winning the moon race, but the N-1 still remained the centerpiece of the Soviet space program. For the N-1's second launch attempt, Engineers chose vehicle number 5L, which would have to fly with only some of the upgrades recommended in the wake of the first launch failure. A full list of required changes would be implemented later on the number 4L rocket, which was put aside for now. At the end of May 1969, the program managers held a series of meetings in Tyratam with the formal goal of closing the issues from the failed first launch. The first meeting held on May 29th, which did not include the top brass, was considered a rehearsal. At the event, Boris Chertok, who was responsible for the flight control system, explained to his superiors that despite all the changes, his team would be unable to prevent the rocket engine control system called CORD, K-O-R-D, 
from issuing random commands. If its cables were damaged by a fire similar to the one that had destroyed the first rocket, the head of the department at the General Machine Building Ministry, Viktor Letivinov, told Chertok, "Better not mention this during the full state commission meeting the next day." Then Vladimir Barman, who was in charge of the launch infrastructure for the N1, prophetically asked whether anyone could guarantee that the accident with the first rocket would not repeat itself 50 seconds earlier while the vehicle was still on the pad. In order to preserve the expensive launch facility, Barman proposed to block the emergency engine cutoff for the first 15 to 20 seconds of the flight so that a, even an uncontrollable rocket could fly itself into the desert. Barman knew a special emergency flight program could be developed to guide the rocket away from the pad if its nominal flight was no longer possible. After a rather heated debate, Barman promised not to raise this issue during the full state commission meeting. In turn, Chertok and his colleagues promised to study Barman's proposal. However, they felt that they had no time to make such a change for the upcoming launch. Instead, over the objections of the propulsion engineers, Chertok's team decided to disable the cord's ability to shut down engines based on their pulsation. Even though the data from these sensors would still flow to ground control via telemetry channels for post-flight analysis. To prevent possible interference in the cord, the command carrying and data transmission lines were better isolated from each other into separate cable bundles, and more reliable power generators were installed to better protect engines from fire. The thermal insulation was reinforced with special asbestos blankets. In addition, a structural ring holding the propulsion system on the first stage of the rocket was reinforced. It was likely prompted by the telemetry data from the first launch about the acceleration reaching 35 Gs exerted onto the rocket structure when all 30 engines had suddenly reached their full thrust at liftoff. Finally, the number of measuring sensors on each engine was increased to 16. As a result, just the propulsion system of the first stage was expected to relay nearly 500 various parameters to ground control, while the whole rocket was now designed to transmit data from around 10,000 points. It gave an overwhelming amount of test work to telemetry specialists. On May 30th, the State Commission met at the Main Assembly Building at Site 112, where the head of the OKB-1 Design Bureau, Vasily Mission, made a final presentation on the first N1 failure and on the upgrades for the second mission. The minister, Sergei Afanishev, insisted that Chertok elaborate on how the cord flight control system had managed to shut down healthy engines on the first N1. Barman reported on the readiness of the launch pad, but did not mention his other demands. Eventually, the commission set the launch date of the N1 number 5L for July 3, 1969. On June 3rd, a month before the second launch attempt, top Soviet officials met again. 
Chief Designer Mission once again ensured his industry bosses that his team had learned from the lessons of the first failure and had taken measures to protect the cord engine control system from interference. Thus, the N1 number 5L vehicle could confidently be sent on a mission to fly around the moon. As a side note, at the end of the meeting, Mission announced to the full state commission that a manned lunar expedition could be accomplished by the end of 1970. Okay, let's move on to the payload and flight plan. Not surprisingly, Chief Designer Mission decided to attempt a circumlunar flight. The payload was assembled from a mix and match of hardware borrowed from the L-1 circumlunar project. The payload included the 7K L-1A spacecraft with fully operational Block D and Block G for the boost to the moon. The rocket also had a functional escape system, apparently for the first time. Flight control computers were installed inside the descent module of the 7K L-1A spacecraft to control the Block G and Block D boosters after the engine stack had separated from the third stage of the N-1 rocket in low Earth orbit. To ensure the rendezvous of the spacecraft with the moon, the launch time for the N-1 number 5L was set at 2318 Moscow time. It would already be past midnight local time. The nighttime launch was also designed to simplify the evacuation of the launch area, since most servicemen and engineers would finish their day shifts and go home to the safety of Site 10 in Tyratam. There were two launch pads capable of launching the N-1. They were called Right and Left. On or about June 20, 1969, the N-1 Number 5L was rolled out to the right launch pad at Site 110. At the time, a full-scale mock-up of the N-1 rocket known as the 1M-1 was erected right next to its flight-worthy sibling to conduct autonomous and integrated tests of various systems at the nearby completed left pad at Site 110. For safety reasons, the M1M rocket was returned back to the assembly building shortly before the scheduled launch of this mission. Preparations of the N1 number 5L rocket on the launch pad at Site 110 went without major problems. After completing a fueling on the eve of the launch, the team led by Vasily Yaskov heard the command on the intercom to review the vehicle. He and his crew went through various access bridges of the gantry, checking that all safety pins marked with red ribbons had been properly removed from the rocket. By the end of the workday on July 3rd, thousands of personnel members working within the potential explosion radius of the N-1 rocket were ordered to evacuate. By 6 o'clock in the evening, hundreds of cars and trucks were clogging the roads in this central section of the test center carrying not only soldiers, officers, and engineers, but even banners of military units and anything else considered valuable. Despite the official secrecy, everyone at the test range knew about the impending launch. As the local midnight approached, family members of launch personnel gathered on the outskirts of the residential area at Site 10 
to see the N1 fly. Many people stood on the roofs of their apartment blocks for the best view and even yelled to less informed neighbors the status of the countdown. The N1 number 5L rocket lifted off as scheduled on July 3rd, 1969 at 23, 18, and 32 seconds Moscow time. Telemetry officer Yuri Ivanchenko was sitting at the console inside the assembly building monitoring the combustion chamber pressure of the first stage engines displayed on his screen as animated bars. We've got preliminary thrust, Ivanchenko yelled into the microphone. Seconds later, bars on the screen jumped to the maximum pressure and a chorus of voices responded with, There is main thrust! The giant vehicle rose above the launch pad, turning night into day as far as 50 kilometers away. Ivanchenko heard the announcer reporting, Five seconds, flight normal! Ten seconds, flight normal! Then, suddenly, several of his thrust indicators collapsed to zero. Pressure in engines 1 through 12 is zero, Ivanchenko yelled. When the rocket climbed to an altitude of about 100 meters, just 10 and a half seconds after liftoff, some bright pieces fell off from its tail section. The giant rocket seemingly froze in mid-air and started tilting to the side. At the tip of the rocket, the emergency escape engines fired and carried the top section into the night. Seconds later, the giant rocket with most of its propellant still on board collapsed back into the launch pad. In violations of procedures, Ivanchenko dropped his headset and rushed to the window in the hallway. He saw the fiery mushroom cloud silently rising over the launch pad. Instinctively, he jumped away from the window toward the door. An instant later, a loud bang slammed the window open and pieces of glass showered the floor. At Site 115, apparently the closest point to the launch pad, where personnel were allowed to stay, Menshikov and his soldiers and officers needed a few moments to fathom what had just happened. While they stood frozen and stunned, giant red and black mushroom cloud erupted over the pad, and air around them started vibrating. Lay down! Menshikov finally yelled, and he jumped into a trench behind him. Soldiers and officers were scrambling into the darkness of the trench, trampling and falling onto each other. At Site 10, Tyratam's residential area, terrified residents saw the ominous glow of the failed launch, followed by a red mushroom cloud and the roar of the explosion. The festive atmosphere suddenly changed into horror. As the shockwave and the rain of metal debris subsided, Menshikov and his colleagues all emerged out of their shelter, stunned but unhurt. Flames were still raging at the launch pad to the northeast under the starry night. The power was shut off around the entire center, but five minutes later most facilities started getting their lights back on. Top officials were allowed to leave the launch control bunker about three and a half kilometers from the pad only half an hour after the explosion. When they came up to the surface, a drizzle of unburned kerosene droplets was still coming down to the ground. As was later estimated, as much as 85% of the propellant on board the rocket did not detonate, reducing the force of the blast from a potential 400 tons to just 4.5 to 5 tons. Also fortunately, evacuation measures proved to be effective as all reports from various sites included no fatalities. 
However, due to the paranoid secrecy, security services apparently intentionally disconnected still operational phone lines between technical facilities and the residential area, leaving numerous family members agonizing for hours over the fate of their loved ones. In the meantime, test officers and engineers were streaming back from their shelters to their regular workplace. Menshikov and his colleagues found their fueling station in total disarray. Doors and windows were blown off, main gates crooked and equipment thrown all over the ground. Most buildings at the site, 113, and surrounding facilities were in similar shape. As dawn came, they were shocked to see numerous dead birds and small animals all over the surrounding area. The heaviest damage was obviously at the epicenter of the explosion. The right launch pad at Site 110 was completely wrecked. One of the 180-meter lightning towers collapsed and was twisted into a spiral. Some pieces from the rocket were found as far as 10 kilometers away, and a 400-kilogram gas reservoir landed on the roof of the assembly building at Site 112, 4 kilometers from the launch pad. Windows were blown off in buildings at Site 2, located 6 kilometers from the launch pad, and the main display window at the Luna Cafe in the main residential area at Site 10, some 35 kilometers away from the epicenter, was shattered. On the morning after the accident, Ivanchenko received the assignment to lead a platoon of soldiers to the launch pad to recover the N1's black boxes, also known as the autonomous registers. These devices captured high-frequency engine parameters on multiple cassette tapes. Surprisingly, the searchers were able to find a number of cassettes despite the complete chaos at the crash site. The cassettes were jammed and their titanium casings had to be sent to Tyratam's main repair depot where they had to be cut with special tools. In the following days, analysis of the available telemetry, photo, and film records revealed that as the propulsion system had been firing with the rocket still on the launch pad, a turbo pump supplying liquid oxygen to engine number 8 exploded a quarter of a second before liftoff. Other engines kept working and the rocket lifted off. It climbed to an altitude of around 200 meters where engines started shutting down. From 10 and a half to 12 seconds into the flight, all engines but number 18 were cut off by a command from the cord diagnostic system. The thrust of a single engine on one side of the rocket caused the giant vehicle to tilt as if it was collapsing back to the pad. At T plus 15 seconds, the emergency escape system fired, pulling away the unmanned descent module, which later landed safely two kilometers away. At T plus 23 seconds, the rocket fell sideways on the launch pad, triggering a series of explosions. Investigators were picking up debris from the blast, including engines, as far as one kilometer from the pad. They discovered that the turbopump of engine number eight had signs of melting and damage from an internal explosion, unlike the other 29 engines. 
The force of this blast was fatal for the entire rocket. Various arteries leading to other engines were severed. A huge fire, likely fed by the severed propellant lines, started the immediate destruction of the lower portion of the first stage. Still, Chertok admitted that at the last moment, the cord system registered out-of-limit parameters on pressure and turbopump rotation rates in engines 7, 19, 20, and 21, and the cord system cut off these engines. The telemetry did not reveal how or why other engines had been shut down. Investigators apparently could never establish why engine number 18 continued firing in the midst of total pandemonium. Under pressure to find a culprit in the initial explosion, propulsion engineers at Kuznetsov Design Bureau insisted that some foreign object must have entered the pump. They believed that a steel diaphragm from a pulsation pressure sensor could have been torn off and ingested into the oxidizer pump. The evaluation of the sensor and various instruments trying to simulate this scenario brought inconclusive results, but no other candidates for a foreign object in the pump could be identified. Any suggestion that the pump could explode all by itself was politically unacceptable, since it would stall the entire Soviet lunar program. Chertok quoted a theory first put forward by OKB-1 engineer Ivan Raikov, according to which a very slight shift of the pump's rotor off its rotational axis could cause its blades to scrape the static part of the pump and produce sparks. In the presence of liquid oxygen, it would lead to an immediate explosion. Again, it was impossible to prove or disprove such a scenario. Therefore, from then on, a foreign object became a favorite excuse for engine failures for the lack of better explanations. Chief Designer Mission did not attempt to blame the engineer-designer Nikolai Kuznetsov for the disaster, since they had both signed off on the decision of an interagency commission that certified the engines for flight tests back in 1967. However, when Ustinov reportedly asked Kuznetsov's main rival, Valentin Glushko, about possible culprits, he responded that he would never believe in supernatural forces throwing a foreign object into pumps. In the midst of heated discussions inside the investigation commission, news reached the Soviets about the launch of Apollo 11 on July 16, 1969. Four days later, the moon race was over for the Soviets in the political sense. However, it would do little to shake the enthusiasm of thousands of Soviet engineers for the exploration of the moon and for other ambitious projects which would be possible with the introduction of the N-1 rocket. During one of the meetings discussing the matter, Optimus tried to find a silver lining in the situation. First of all, in the fact that there were no casualties in the accident. To that, Vladimir Barman angrily said that he and hundreds of his workers had been casualties because now they would have to essentially rebuild the facility. Barman estimated that it would take at least a year 
to restore the facility even from the most expeditious work. Another comment was made that flight tests could resume immediately with the undamaged left pad. To that, Barman said that he would never again give permission to launch until the rocket had been modified to block the engine cutoff over the launch pad. Take it into the wasteland and blow it up there, Barman said. You can make many rockets, but the pad is the only one we have left, and even that one is yet to be finished. And once again, Barman's words would turn out to be prophetic. Salutations from the Sunshine State. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 199 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled The Second Test Flight of the Soviet N-1 Moon Rocket. The countdown for episode 200 is at T-1. First of all, sincere apologies for mispronouncing those Russian names. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Make sure you go to the homepage and sign up for the email list, spacerockethistory.com, and connect with me on Twitter and Facebook there. Today, we salute my Patreon donors. Patreon donors give a small amount monthly to support the podcast. Thank you, Patreon donors who have honored your pledge this month. I had several afterthoughts about this week's episode. First, I think it's important I give a big shout-out to Russia SpaceWeb, where I uh, derive most of my information for this episode. They have a good site, a really good site over there, and a lot of good information at Russia SpaceWeb. In case I did not communicate this on the episode, there were several reasons why the M1 was a failure, the entire project. One reason was the complex plumbing required to feed fuel and oxidizer into the clustered arrangement of rocket engines. That plumbing proved to be extremely fragile. Another reason, unlike Florida, the N1's Baikonur launch complex couldn't be reached by heavy barge. You remember that the Saturn boosters came to the Cape pre-assembled on a barge. The Soviets had to transport by rail, so all the stages had to be broken down and reassembled. Another reason, the engines for Block A, the first stage, were only test-fired individually, and the entire cluster of 30 engines was never static test-fired as a unit all put together. So they couldn't recognize all the complex problems they had until they launched it and then did a test after it was destroyed and read the telemetry and all that. So not being able to check it as a unit was a problem. Now the upper stages, they could check those as a unit, but not the first stage. And last, I think it would be the design of using 30 separate engines greatly complicated things. 
So those are some of the reasons for the failure of the N1 program. Now, I have a little off-topic info from the meeting that I spoke about that occurred on June 3, 1969. This was the full commission meeting. Something else happened there that was pretty interesting, but it was a little off-topic, so I didn't include it in the episode. After the commission finished discussing the N1, the next item on the agenda was the discussion of the Mars expedition. Keldish was the only person among the top brass interested to hear about it, but uh, Chief Designer Mission described the interplanetary orbital ship called MOK and the Martian landing ship called MPK, the Earth return ship and the power supply unit with a nuclear reactor to power the electric engines. The spacecraft would use artificial gravity and return to Earth orbit after a couple years in flight. According to the mission designers, if the N-1 rocket could be upgraded with a more powerful hydrogen upper stage, two such boosters would be enough to support a manned mission to Mars. Keldish urged mission to continue Mars studies as long as it did not interfere with ongoing work on the lunar project. The idea was... If the Russians lost the moon race, which it was almost certain they were going to right at this point, the thinking was that if the Soviets could not beat the U.S. to the moon, then perhaps they could beat them to Mars. Okay, I posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on the webpage, spacerockethistory.com. Hope you check that out. Sadly, our one-time donations took a nosedive this week, and there were no new pledges on Patreon. But I was pleased to receive one donation to support the podcast over the past week. Alexander L. from Berlin donated at the Mercury level and earned his rocket emoji. So we are still at 97 Patreon donors with a goal of reaching 150. It doesn't look like we're going to reach uh, the 100 Patreons by the 200th episode. Our overall number of donors is at 122, with a goal of reaching 300 donors by the end of the year. Please keep in mind, Space Rocket History is entirely listener-supported. I depend upon your financial support to keep the podcast going. If you're enjoying this content that I'm providing for you, and you can afford to help, please consider doing so. I would really like to be funded enough to at least cover up to Apollo 17. Keep in mind... You don't have to donate much. You can make a one-time $10 donation at the Vostok level or sign up with Patreon for a $1 donation per month, sort of like a voluntary subscription. All donors are rewarded with their names on the donor page on the website spacerockethistory.com based on their donation level. I want to encourage everyone to share the podcast. Feel free to link the homepage or a particular episode on all social media. And thanks to those who have already done so. This is the end of content for this episode. You're welcome to stay and listen to my off-topic thoughts if you want. Thanks for sticking around, folks. Hope you enjoyed that episode. I surely did. Next week, I will cover the next significant space event in 1969, which was the Soviet Luna 15 designed to return a sample back to Earth. 
Then, finally, the series that I've been waiting for for four years, Apollo 11. In podcast news, I'm getting really excited about reaching episode 200. Get your Tang or other orange-colored beverage ready for the Tang Ceremony for episode 200. That will be next week. Can you believe it? 200 episodes next week. In other podcast news, I had a very difficult time getting episode 198 into iTunes. After hours of trying to figure out what was wrong and contacting tech support, I finally discovered that my RSS podcast feed was larger than iTunes would accept. So, I had to make it smaller to get episode 198 recognized by iTunes. I finally got it accepted on a Thursday morning. But here's the problem now. The first eight episodes are no longer available from iTunes. You have to go to the homepage to get them now. That means for each new episode I post, an old one will fall off of iTunes. I'm not sure how I'm going to fix this or if I even can fix this. But at least the episodes will be available on the website spacerockethistory.com under the Podcast Archive tab. In space-related news, Apollo 11, the capsule, is going to go on tour. It's going to come to Houston, St. Louis, Pittsburgh, and Seattle. For the schedule of that, just Google it and you will find where it's going and when it's going. Another newsworthy space item is SpaceX is going to send a couple of private citizens on a circumlunar trip, hopefully within the next two years. They're going to use their Falcon 9 Heavy. Maybe it's time we recognize some of these commercial spaceflight companies on the donors page. Hmm, I have to think that one over. In personal news, I, as I mentioned before, I'm in the Sunshine State, I'm targeting the March 8 ULA Delta launch and the Falcon 9 Echo Star 23 launch on March 12th. And there is the possibility that a couple more launches may occur in March at the Cape. Okay, that's all I have for this week. I will try to get episode 200 up by next Thursday. Once again, it's possible I could be a little late on that episode. So long for now.